Matthew chapter 25, the message is titled, Jesus in Glory. And the main idea from the Bible this morning is that Jesus reveals that he will return and he will judge all mankind to eternal destinies. And so, the disciples should be ready. And today, it's basically the same message. We must, or excuse me, we know and we must continue to watch for Jesus by making our salvation sure, by stewarding his resources wisely, and by showing love for God by loving fellow Christians. Now, I got to be honest. Um, so I traveled on Thursday and Friday this week, and yesterday morning was just hard to wake up. I don't know what it is about sitting in a car for like eight hours that makes you extra tired, but I was. I was so groggy yesterday morning, and it was, it was kind of a two-coffee cup morning. Those of you who don't like coffee, I'm sorry. I'll just drink more. It's okay. But uh, th- there are some mornings like that that you kind of, you're blinking your eyes, and you're wondering, what day is it? Uh, where am I? What's my name? You know, something like that. But not every morning, right? There are other mornings where you wake up and, man, you are alert and ready to go. It's, it's just, there's some, there's some excitement about it. Well, on August 8th, 2009, I did not need coffee to wake up because that morning I was going to head to a church and marry Megan Justine Renfrew. And, and I, I don't think I hardly got any sleep. I mean, I was up late the night before, and then I was up early that morning. And it was just, there, there was so much to do. I, I, and, and in my apartment, I had most of the groomsmen staying over as well as my brothers. And, um, you know, so it was finding the tuxedo and cramming in a little bit of breakfast and making jokes and then getting up to the church and figuring out, you know, what to do with the cummerbund and the bow tie and the, the boutonniere where you made sure you didn't stab yourself or whoever you were helping. And, uh, of course, Megan had uh, similar things going on, just just no uh, cummerbund, uh, thank the Lord. So uh, she's, you know, with her bridesmaids and getting, I guess the hair was a major ordeal uh, but it, a lot of things to do. The candles had to be lit, and the, the flowers had to be just so, and, and the microphones had to be double-checked, and the guitars were tuned, and, and um, you know, all of this is going on. And, of course, the rings had to be carefully given. And the point is, it was such an important day that we were ready. We were excited. We were um, getting up with anticipation. And I, I don't advise this for everyone, but, you know, I, I decided to both, uh, we, we both did, to write our own vows and to memorize them. And so, of course, I'm reviewing those to make sure that I actually commit to what I want to commit to, to my beautiful wife. But here's the point. It all led up to this moment where I'm standing down front and the doors open and Megan's walking down the aisle. And, and, you know, I just had this kind of silly grin as my jaw hangs open because she's just so beautiful. And, and here she comes. And I was marrying my wife. Today, when Jesus, he's, last week, if you remember, we were in Matthew 24. Jesus taught a lot. He gave us a lot of things we needed to know about the time leading up to his return. This week, he is teaching a little bit, but it's more... It's more teaching to our hearts than our heads. You see, Jesus wants us to be ready for his return. So he's going to give us three 
pictures to illustrate what it looks like to be alert and ready to wake up like it is the day you're getting married. And I think if we listen closely, we're going to hear in these stories our Lord Jesus preparing us to live each day ready for his return. So if you have your Bibles and you are physically able, I invite you to stand in honor of God's word as we read Matthew 25. We're going to start in verse 1. God's word says this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. 
You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food, thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Father God, you have just graced us to hear directly from you. We've just heard from Jesus. And what a powerful word we have heard. Now, Holy Spirit, I ask, please, that you come and you help us to understand what we just heard and understand it in such a way that not only our minds, but especially our hearts are drawn to follow you. Jesus, I ask that you get glory and that we leave closer to you than when we came. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The first section is this story that I'm calling Ready for the Groom. It's in verses 1 to 13, and the key verse is verse 13 that says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus is continuing this end time sermon 
on the Mount of Olives. Remember, it began as he was leaving the temple, and the disciples asked him when the temple would be destroyed, and what would be the sign of Jesus' coming and the end of the age. And of course, they thought that the temple was going to endure all the way to the end, but uh, Jesus knew that the temple would be destroyed in the year 70 AD, but that his return would be a long while. We are in the year 2022, and he has not yet returned. But in God's good timing, he will. And so Jesus tells this parable, uh, this story about ten bridesmaids. Sometimes I get tripped up by the ten virgins. It just uh, the unmarried friends of the bride who had this function in the wedding like bridesmaids. Now, in a Jewish wedding, the bride and groom would get engaged, and it was very important. In fact, if you remember from when Mary and Joseph were engaged, part of the scandal of Mary being found pregnant before they were married is that this was considered, because at the time they didn't know that the Holy Spirit had done this, this was considered adultery, that she had broken her marriage vows, even though they had not yet actually celebrated the marriage and moved in together. And so the, the point is, the engagement was very important. And, and during this time, while the bride stayed living in her parents' house, uh, the groom was preparing the home, and, and after typically a year came the day of the wedding celebration. And, and in full procession, the groom would come to the bride's home where she was living and then take her to live with him. And so when the groom would arrive, the bridesmaids would be out to welcome him. And then they would all process together to the groom's home where they would have the wedding banquet. And so if you were a bridesmaid at that time, your job was to really get the party started, as it were, by welcoming the groom and then by processing together to the party. Now, if you remember, a parable, uh, like we said back in Matthew 13, is a simple earthly story with a hidden heavenly meaning designed to reveal, excuse me, to reveal the redemptive rule of Jesus and force a decision. And Jesus gives us three parables, and it's fitting that these are the last times Jesus will teach in his earthly ministry. After this, he's silent until he is convicted and crucified. And so what is the hidden heavenly meaning in this first parable? Well, thanks to Jesus, it's not all that hidden. He tells us the meaning, and I love when he does this in verse 13. He says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. In this story, there are these ten bridesmaids and the one groom. Now, remember, all the bridesmaids fall asleep because the groom is delayed, and it's not until midnight that it is announced that the groom is coming close. What happened is they have something like oil lamps, or might, might be better translated, something like a torch, and it was their job to hold those up as a way to, to celebrate the groom's 
arrival. And, you know, different commentators had different ideas. It, it seemed like maybe the rags soaked in a little bit of olive oil could stay lit for 15 to 20 minutes. And so, you know, the idea was you just light it right when the groom was getting there. Uh, but th these foolish ones didn't bring extra oil in order to stay lit longer. And so, of course, they leave to go get more oil, but the wise ones who had extra oil, they are able to replenish their torches, and the groom arrives while the foolish ones are gone. And so the wise ones go with the groom to the wedding banquet while the foolish ones are shut out. So what's it all mean? Well, this is where context is so helpful. It says there, watch, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And that, those words, day and hour, clue us in that Jesus is talking about his return and the final judgment. This is what he said last week in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So in the parable, the groom represents Jesus. And the bridesmaids really represent all people. That they're, All of us are divided into two groups. We're either wise because we're ready for Jesus or we're foolish and we're not. And the big point is that we must be ready whenever Christ returns because we don't know when. So we could summarize it this way. To be ready whenever Christ returns, we must make our salvation sure. None of the bridesmaids knew exactly when the groom was showing up. It wasn't like what separated the wise from the foolish is the wise had this insider knowledge. Hey, hey, somebody told me the groom's not coming till 1230, so we better bring extra oil. They didn't know. Everybody fell asleep. Everybody experienced the same delay. What separated them was that the wise were ready whenever the groom arrived, even if it was later than they expected. Well, there's only one way to be ready whenever Jesus comes back. And that is you've got to know for sure that you are right with Jesus Christ. Because if you're not right with Jesus Christ, you're not ready whenever he comes back. If you are right with Jesus Christ, you are ready whenever he returns. Well, that begs the question, how do we make our salvation sure? How do we know for sure we're saved? Well, we, we receive Jesus in precisely the way the Bible tells us to. We don't just rely on a feeling or, or I just, I think I'm doing pretty good. We go to the Bible and we trust that whatever the Bible says with regards to how we receive Jesus, that that's the way we receive him. That's how we'll know our salvation is sure. And the Bible basically gives us three words to make our salvation sure. The word repent, the word trust, and the word submit. First, repent. The first thing is we've got to consider ourselves in light of God's holiness. And if we consider ourselves in light of God's holiness... An honest assessment of me says, I have fallen short of God's perfect 
holiness. I don't measure up. I have not loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. This morning, do you know that you are a sinner and that you deserve God's wrath? Like, like if you come to grips because the Holy Spirit has moved your heart with the fact that you don't measure up. You, you, you are not good enough for God to look at your life and say you deserve heaven. Once you've agreed with that, you've got to do something more. You've got to then turn and beg God for forgiveness. Right? This isn't, well, I've, I've made kind of a mess of my life, but I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to do better next time. I, I'm going to try harder. No, 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 no. Uh, the only hope we have is to go to God and to beg for his forgiveness, to, to turn away from our sins. That's what the word repent means. In prayer, you ask God's forgiveness in, and you turn away from your sin. Have you done that? That's repent. Next is trust. After considering ourselves and how we don't measure up to God's holiness, we have to consider Jesus. We have to consider what the Bible says about them, that he is God the Son, come down from heaven, born uniquely of the Virgin Mary, so that he inherits none of Adam's guilt and sin, and so that he is both fully God and fully man. We have to consider that Jesus alone lived perfectly, that he never sinned. That Jesus went to the cross to die because that was what our sin deserved. That's where God poured his wrath on his son instead of on us. And then that Jesus really died. <coughs> Excuse me. He really was put into a tomb and left there Friday, Saturday. And then Sunday morning, he really did rise victoriously from the grave. The, when you come to a point in your life where you agree with that, it's not just up here going, yeah, I think that's right. It's, it's in here saying, I'm going to put my whole weight of trust on Jesus that he alone will save me. Have you done that? Have you put your whole trust in Jesus? Not in like, Jesus plus something else, right? I, I know the temptation um, to hedge our bets. If you ask somebody for financial advice today, they always say you've got to have a diverse portfolio because one thing may fail and then that way the other investment catches. Well, that's good advice for financial investing, but it's lousy advice for eternal investing. In eternal investing, it has to be all in Jesus or there is no salvation, to make your salvation sure and be ready for Jesus, you must trust him alone to forgive your sins. And finally, not just repent and trust, but submit. We've considered ourselves, we've considered Jesus, but we've also got to consider our allegiance. Because you see, naturally, not only have we fallen short of God's glory, but we have sought by our sin to declare our independence from God. We have essentially said, God, I know better how to govern my life than you do. That's what a sinner does. And as we've read in this passage, Jesus is king. He is Lord. 
And so if we're going to come to him for salvation, we have to be willing to surrender or to submit. There can't be, well, Jesus, I want you to forgive my sin, but I still want to be in charge of my life. I, I want, you know, the benefits of salvation, but I, I'm not going to submit to you. Hey, you can say that, but then I have to declare to you on the authority of God's word, you're not yet a Christian. Because to be a Christian is to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. To make your salvation sure, you must submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The decision to repent, to trust, to submit is not a one and done decision. It's a one and forever decision. It begins at the point that God so graces your heart that you indeed do trust Jesus alone, but it continues for a lifetime. So the question to you Christians is, are you still repenting? Are you still trusting? Are you still submitting? Last week, Jesus distinguished between those who had truly trusted in him and those who hadn't with these words. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Are you enduring or are you growing cold? This morning, if you're like me, you may need to just take a, a minute here with this parable of these 10 bridesmaids and pause and talk to God in prayer. That's okay. If you need to spend a few moments with God, I hereby give you permission to ignore me for a few minutes and have that time with him. Talk to the Lord. There may be somebody here who's never trusted in Jesus for salvation. I think this parable warns us not to be lulled into staying asleep as if we've got all the time in the world to make a decision. The foolish bridesmaids were essentially at the grocery store when Jesus came back. They weren't ready. And then they were shut out and missed heaven. We don't know exactly when Jesus will return, but he will. And it will not be at an expected day or hour. In other words, we can't set a phone alarm for Christ's return. You might be in the grocery store too, buying food. You might be stuck in traffic on I-10, uh, wishing that they would finish the construction at some point in Jacksonville. Yeah, you, you might be uh, at a friend's wedding, watching a, a bride walk down an aisle. I don't know where you'll be, but you'll be somewhere when Jesus comes back. And at that moment, there's not going to be time to make a decision for Christ. It's not like you could say, time out, Jesus. I, I, I always said I would make a decision for you. I just need five more minutes. That's it. The, the, the foolish bridesmaid showed up and the door was already shut. In other words, the dumbest mistake we can make is to put off deciding for Christ. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about you're a non-Christian here and, and you, you, you're not really sure about this church thing. Hey, there are some things that you'll need to read in the Bible and talk about with a Christian. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those of you who have had the opportunity. You understand the gospel, but you've said, I'll do that later. 
I'm telling you, it is a mistake to put off making a decision for Christ because as long as you're putting it off, you are not ready for Christ's return. So Jesus moves from calling us to be ready for his return with a story about a wedding to calling us to use resources wisely with a story about investing. Verses 14 to 30, I call investing for eternity. And the key verses, it's actually repeated. It's both verse 21 and verse 23. It says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. It's another parable. This one has a wealthy master who leaves three servants different sums of money. And the implied task is for them to invest that money via trade and business and turn a profit for their master. So we have basically a, a CEO and his top three financial investors. Now throughout the course of time, uh, the two first investors return very good returns on their investments. And that they are, when the master returns, uh, praised and given additional responsibilities. They're given promotions for their hard work. <coughs> Excuse me. But the third investor is rebuked sharply because in a lazy way, he does nothing with the money. He just gives it back to the master when he returns. Now, as a bit of background, um, you know, the word talent is a weight. It's an amount of gold. It's not like America's got talent, a certain skill that you can do. It's, it's a, just like a pound. It's a certain weight. It's about 75 pounds of gold or the equivalent of three thousand shekels. And I did a little bit of research on Wednesday this past week. Gold was selling for just over $1,800 an ounce. So doing a little bit of math, the servant three who is given one talent was entrusted with about $2 million. Servant two who is given two talents was entrusted then with $4 million. You can see where I'm going Servant one, who was given five talents, was entrusted with more than $10 million. And what about the profit? Well, that means that servant two returned over $4 million in profit. And servant one returned over $10 million in profit. If you're a numbers nerd like me, you know, assuming the master was gone for 10 years, that's an annual return rate of 7%. That's really good over that long haul, doubling the money in 10 years. But what was the, the rate for that servant three? Well, it would have been zero, right? There was absolutely no profit whatsoever. And imagine for just a minute that some lender would have said, well, if you'll give me the money and I go out and invest it, I'll at least guarantee you 1% annually. Well, that would have returned at least $200,000 in profit over 10 years. So no wonder the master rebuked the third servant. He could have done nothing and still gotten $200,000, but he was like extra lazy and really did nothing. 
So the first two servants were good, invest, good investors, and the third was terrible. But what's the point? Right, this isn't a parable primarily uh, about which stocks to invest in or something like that. This, this is about more than money. The point is that like wise servants, we're to invest our master's resources wisely. And that that's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But that just begs the question, what's the master entrusted to us? What resources has he given us? And we could talk this morning about how, well, we're alive. And and we all have this trust of a number of breaths to breathe until the master comes back. So how are you using the breath and the time that the Lord has given you? How are you using, say, the, the money and the skills that God has given you? And these are all appropriate to talk about. But I want to zoom in on one very important thing God has entrusted us with. Perhaps the most important. This is what Jesus says to his followers just before he ascends back into heaven. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here's what it boils down to. By faith, we should use the time, money, but especially the Holy Spirit and the good news God has given us to make much of Jesus. We have been entrusted with the gospel and the power to share the gospel. And that trust is from our Lord and Savior who bled and died and rose for us. And he says, now now go and make disciples. Go and be my witnesses. I think it's worth, Christian, taking careful stock of your life. If you claim to be a Christian. I mean, check yourself, for instance, with your money. Is it being invested for eternal purposes? Are you giving faithfully to your church home? Think about your time. Are you using it to invest in others? Or is your time all for yourself? But, but especially, what about the gospel? As, as the gospel become kind of this optional add-on like, well, maybe those super Christians, maybe the pastor, maybe those professional Christians tell others about Jesus, but I'm just, I'm okay with being an ordinary Christian. I'm telling you, ordinary Christians are entrusted with the gospel to share the gospel. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are equipped in a very basic way to tell others how to trust Jesus. That doesn't mean you shouldn't learn and and strive to get better and ask other Christians to come alongside you. But here's the the terrible thing about this, right? If you're that person who says, oh yeah, yeah, I've I've trusted in Jesus. I was was little and I prayed this prayer and, and I know I'm good. But for years and years and years, you have habitually like like never tried to tell somebody about Jesus. Then to me, you seem a lot like the third servant. Right, and, and I just worry that when Jesus comes back, you're going to show up and say, okay, here's the gospel. I kept it to myself. And Jesus is going to say, you lazy servant, cast him into the place of weeping and gnashing 
of teeth. David Platt talks about how many American churches, there seem to be those who think they're Christians, but are not, and are going to be stunned on the day Jesus returns. This is what he says. There's a pandemic problem across contemporary Christianity. Many people have made decisions, prayed prayers, signed cards, been baptized, but they don't truly know Christ. Now, I get it. If I was sitting where you are, I would ask a question. Wait, wait a minute, pastor. Time out. Are you saying that I have to share the gospel in order to earn my salvation? Are, are you introducing a salvation by the works of sharing the gospel? Never. You could not share the gospel enough to earn your salvation. It can't be done because the measure is perfection. The measure is God's holiness. The only way to be saved is by trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation. But remember, part of that trusting means submitting to him, submitting to his lordship. And he doesn't give you the Holy Spirit just to hang out by yourself with the gospel. He entrusts us with the Holy Spirit and the gospel in order to share the gospel. So if you're the one who says, well, I just don't, I just don't really share the gospel, then I would say, well, you just don't really have the Holy Spirit. And you need to get saved. Because there's no way the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you is going to let you be okay with never sharing the gospel. Those of you who are Christians, you know what I'm talking about. Um, even though you miss a few times, or you tell the Holy Spirit no a few times, there's this burden when you're around people you love who aren't Christians, and it's like you'll, you'll stumble in your words a few times, but you've got to share something, and then you'll wish, oh, oh, man, I wish I had shared that more clearly, but, but there's this impetus from inside that says, I've got to say something, because they need Jesus. I want to look at what the master says for just a minute when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That word faithful in your Bibles means trustworthy. And that sounds normal, but think of it this way. We've talked about already, have you trusted Jesus? But this second parable asks the question, can Jesus trust you? Can Jesus trust me? Can I be trusted with the precious gospel of Jesus Christ to use it for what it's intended for, to tell others the only way to be saved? So what should you do if you have professed faith in Jesus but you have habitually not shared the gospel? Well, I'd say probably first you need to become a Christian. You need to, maybe you confessed your sins, maybe you... Um, did understand Jesus dying on the cross and you asked his forgiveness, but maybe you never submitted to him as the Lord of your life. And so you've kind of gone through and not obeyed when he says, go and make disciples. If that's you this morning, praise God that you're here and that you get to hear the gospel again and you have this opportunity to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. I'd say, what a gracious God. And this morning, don't leave without surrendering your life to Jesus. Those of you who are trying to share the gospel, 
keep on. Maybe you um, this year decide to read a book like What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. It's on the little bookshelf out here. Uh, I commend it to you so that you just increase in your knowledge of the gospel. But I would say perhaps the best way to get better at it is to do it with other believers. You know, uh, pray for that lost friend and set up a time. Maybe where you're doing lunch with another Christian friend and, and, and you're tag teaming, right? It's, it's totally legitimately okay to gang up on non-Christians in a loving way, right? Like, like invite them to lunch and, and have a Christian friend with you and say, I mean, you know, hey, I, I just want to share something with you that means a lot to me. Can I tell you about Jesus? Are you going to feel awkward? Probably so. Are you going to stumble a little bit? Yeah, probably. Is that okay? Yep. Because the Holy Spirit can take your stumbling and touch someone's heart in an eternal way. Well, Jesus has called us to make our salvation sure with a story about a wedding and to make much of the good news with a story about investing. And finally, Jesus tells a mini parable about a shepherd with flocks of sheep and goats. The key verse is the last one, verse 46, where he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The mini parable, it's actually very, very tiny, happens in verse, let me find it here, 32. It just says, in verse 32, he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So it's a little bit different because these other parables are really elaborate. And this one, it's just like there was a shepherd. He went and put the goats over here and the sheep over here. That's it. Like the parable is kind of anticlimactic, but he spends the majority of the time explaining the parable so that we don't miss the heavenly meaning. And that's this. Every single person who has ever lived and ever will live is either a sheep or a goat. And every person is going to be separated forever by Jesus into either the sheep on his right who are going to heaven or the goats on his left who are going to hell. And the difference between the sheep and the goats all boils down to how they love fellow Christians at church. So here's the point. I will spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. There is no third option and there's no changing homes. We're going to do a little comparison between verse 34 and verse 41. So you, I hope for your sake, like my Bible, I have the hardship of verse 34 is on one page and verse 41 is on the other. So I wrote them out over here. You might be flipping back and forth. But look in verse 34. Jesus starts by saying to the sheep, come. And then look down in verse 41. He says to the goats, depart. Heaven is where Christians will live forever with God. That's what Jesus means when he says, come, come to me, come to God. The biggest difference between the two destinations is that heaven is with God. Whereas hell, 
by contrast, is where non-Christians will live forever without God. That's what Jesus means when he says, depart from me or cast that servant away. Hell is without God. Now look with me again in verse 34 where he says, you who are blessed by my father. And compare that to, in verse 41, you cursed. Heaven is the ultimate blessing from God. It's his gracious gift come to its fullest expression. It's when those who have trusted in Christ see the heights and the depths of his love lavished on us. It's like God's gift unwrapped and enjoyed. Hell is the ultimate curse from God. It's God treating us with all justice and no grace. It's when the wrath of God against our sin falls on us forever instead of on Jesus. Catch that. Either Jesus experiences God's wrath for you or you experience God's wrath forever. Again, in verse 34, Jesus says, as the king sitting on his throne, inherit the kingdom to the sheep versus to the goats, he says, the eternal fire. Heaven is the home for God and for God's sons and God's daughters. If you've been forgiven in Christ Jesus, it's not just like God looks at you and says, okay, 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 I won't have any more wrath for you. No, 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 go bother someone else. Right, right, he forgives you, but then he takes and he adopts you. He, he says, I love you. I, cherishes you, I cherish you as my son, as my daughter, and you have all the royal inheritance rights of a prince, of a princess, of one whose father is the king. Inherit the kingdom. Hell, by contrast, there's no home. There, there, there's no uh, sense of belonging. The inheritance, there's no inheritance. There's only the wages of sin is death. Hell is perpetual suffering and agony. It's the punishment that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah magnified eternally. In verse 34, again, it says, prepared for you, from the foundation of the world, verses in verse 41, prepared for the devil and his angels. Heaven has been specifically crafted for God's people. It's the home that perfectly fits us. It is the existence to which all creation longs to be restored, a new heavens and a new earth or a combined heaven-earth. If God made this world splendid in six days, what do you think it's going to be like when he's had a few thousand years to get a home ready for us? Versus hell was specifically crafted for Satan and for demons. It wasn't designed for humans, but it is the only appropriate and fitting place for God's enemies to live forever. It is the existence which caused the demons to beg Jesus to be cast into pigs instead. So hell is not where Satan and demons are going to torture you. 
Satan and demons are going to be suffering there along with all of God's enemies, everyone who has refused Jesus. And verse 46 says, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Heaven's going to last forever. It will be abundant life in which each day is better than the day before, in which every aspect of what makes us feel alive today will be perfected and magnified and freed from sin and glorifying to God. It will be a million new discoveries as God the Father shows us all the amazing gifts he's prepared for us. Come see this, guys. Come see this. You're not going to believe it. Come here. It will be living with God face to face in endless, glorious fellowship. Hell will also last forever. The suffering from pain, the suffering from sorrow will go on and on and on. There's, got to, there's no opportunity to leave. Like, okay, after a thousand years you suffered enough, now here's another chance. No, 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 no. Remember, the way is shut. It's sealed. There's not going to be any friendship in the land of perpetual darkness. There is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. The point is clear, right? Jesus isn't appealing right now to your heads so much as your hearts. He's, he's saying all this because he wants you to want to be in heaven. He wants you to fear hell and desire heaven enough to trust him alone for salvation. Now we wrap up this morning with perhaps a passage that is skipped over sometimes or mistaught. And that is basically we're going to ask Jesus, well, what is it, Jesus, outwardly? What does it look like to be a sheep versus a goat? Now, Jesus gives us a big hint. He's talking throughout all three of these parables to people who think they're saved. Right, the, the foolish virgins, uh, the bridesmaids, are knocking on the door saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. The third servant comes and, and he says, here, master. And in the parable of the sheep and the goats, even the goats come and address Jesus as Lord. And so he's talking to people who expect to go to heaven. But he has the hard experience. He's, he's trying to wake us up that there are going to be many who expect heaven but are going to be cast into hell. And so what is it that separates the two? Well, look with me in verse 40. He says there, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. And he basically repeats himself in verse 45, but in the opposite. As you did not do it to one of the least of these. This has to do both with our adoption and our union. 
as Christians, we've already talked about being adopted into the family of God. And so you are now God's son. You are now God's daughter. And that means we get to address one another as brother and sister, which means that the people he is talking about are primarily Christians that you have the most connection to. That is Christians in your local church. That's exactly how Paul uses it throughout the rest of the New Testament. When he's writing a letter to a church, for instance, like his letter to the church in Corinth, he'll say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother to the church of God that is in Corinth. So brother is a term used to represent Christians in a local church. And Jesus says, What differentiates the sheep and the goats, what shows whether they have truly loved me is whether they love their brother and sister in the local church. And he goes through all kinds of examples. Right in verse 35, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink, the sheep. Versus I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. Now remember, we're not saying that you earn your salvation by your good deeds. He has already said you have to trust in me. That's the only way you can be ready whenever Christ comes back. And he's saying, look, when you submit to me, I'm telling you, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. And you're going to show that the Holy Spirit's at work in your life as you just grow in your love for fellow Christians, especially in your local church. I've seen Christians here open up their homes and have each other over and and share their food, share their resources. And it's such a picture of the way that God loves us. And I don't think they're doing it to earn their salvation. I think they just are loving. And it's such a picture of how they have been loved. He says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Or I was naked and you clothed me, or naked and you did not clothe me. I I think about, you know, what's what's our reaction, Redemption Church, when a new family comes in? Right? Are are, are we excited to to go and talk to that person and and just hear what God is up to in their life? Or or are we kind of like, who? Who are they? What are they doing here? I don't know them. They're sitting where I normally sit. You know what I mean? Like, like how do we respond to the stranger? What do we do when somebody has a visible financial need that's a member of this church family, right? Is that, you know, an opportunity to show love to Christ or is that like an opportunity to gossip and say, man, they should manage their money better. They should, they should get a better job, right? Naked and you clothed me versus naked and you did not clothe me. Finally, sick and you visited me. In prison, you came to me versus sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Sometimes your fellow Christians may be in big trouble, whether it's health or, or, or legal issues. I don't know, but, I mean, it kind of becomes clear whether or not we, we love someone when they face a crisis. And I can tell you, I have seen believers at this church show their love for Jesus in part by how they surround someone in a crisis, how they come alongside them, and it's just whatever you need. What, what, what can I do for you? I'm going to pray for you. I'm going, to, I'm going to have my hand on your shoulder. I'm going to help you tangibly. 
And it's a beautiful picture of this church showing love for Jesus. What all boils down to Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? He's going to return. It's going to be undeniable. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be bright. It's going to be loud. There's not going to be anybody wondering, hey, did Jesus come back and I miss it? No, it'll be clear. And it will be wonderful if we're ready. How do you be ready? Well, well, we've said, first, if you are not a Christian, you've got to turn your life over to Jesus Christ. You've got to repent. You've got to trust. You've got to submit. Because it's only by faith in Jesus that you're going to be saved. If you're not a Christian this morning, please, when Pastor Wesley comes up here in just a minute, we're not going to linger long, but I'm going to give you a brief opportunity to come and talk with me, and I'd love to just pray with you as you give your life to Jesus Christ. That's what this time is going to be for in just a minute. It's an opportunity for you to respond. Now, if you are a Christian... Are, are, are you allowed to walk an aisle as a Christian? Well, of course you are. Of course you are. Uh, someone may be here and saying, well, pastor, I, I need to get baptized because I've given my life to Jesus, but I've never been baptized as a believer. Please come see me. We'll pray and we'll set up a time for that to happen. You may just be a Christian who wants me to pray with you. Pastor, I've got this friend in my life and I've not shared the gospel with him. Would you pray with me? Absolutely. I'm going to pray. And, and if God's laid something on your heart, please come down. And let me pray with you, and we'll have that time with the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for Matthew 25. Jesus, I mean, these stories seem so earthly. A, a wedding, a, a, you know, financial investors, and a, a guy gone for a while, and settling the accounts, and then a shepherd just separating the flocks. But in all of them, God, you're giving us what we need to be ready for your return. And, and whether it was the kid's story this morning or, you know, the whole of the chapter today, I just pray that you touch everyone here in some way. We asked at the beginning of the service that you would get glory for yourself and you'd leave us different. Cement in our hearts the changes you want for us. And God, call whoever you want to yourself for salvation right now. I ask that Jesus in your name. Amen.